Now that might be a little problem. So I'm 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 from that area. So uh, we're just trying to protect Raph. You know, trying to keep keep him safe. Uh, thank you all for being here this morning. You know, it's been a month since I kicked this uh, this series off, and that was a that was a pleasure. And today I get the privilege of of uh, closing this one out. And so there have been a lot of new faces uh, over the past few weeks. And so I just want to say welcome. Uh, to you if this is the first time, second time. I hope I'm not the, the first one to do that. I'm pretty sure I'm not. But thank you all for coming, and uh, we appreciate you being here. So the purpose of this uh, sermon series called Resolutions, the reason we wanted to do this is we wanted to kind of refresh our mission and our vision and our strategies for the new year uh, for the church. And so if you've been coming here for any amount of time, you know that our mission is to help move people on a simple journey toward Jesus. And that answers the question, what? You know, what, what are we here for? We also have a vision that we share uh, here at the church, and that answers the question, why? And so why do we want to help move people on a simple journey uh, toward Jesus? And it's because we want to bring glory to God, we want to love Jesus, we want to love people, and we want to make disciples that make disciples. That's why we're here. And so you, you've seen the four chairs that Randy left up here and, and preached through. And, and the reason the four-chair metaphor is kind of powerful is because it kind of shows you what that, that, that mission is. It shows you what that journey looks like. And it also has the added benefit of reflecting what Christ did when he ministered here for three and a half years on this earth, when he brought uh, just uneducated men and, and women, and he took them through this process. And at the end of this journey, uh, he made disciples that make disciples. And so in chair number one, it's, this represents the seeker. This is the, the person who's, who's lost spiritually, the person who's spiritually dead. And what we know about dead people is they don't really do much on their own. They can't do anything on their own. And so it takes somebody that's a little further along the journey to pour their life into them and then to bring them on their path. Jesus made a real simple challenge to the first people that would follow him when he said, come and see. When they were curious, curious about him, he just said, come and see. And that's what we need to tell people uh, that don't know Jesus. And so when you're in this chair, always there, there's this gap between chair one and chair two. Chair two is for the believer. And you kind of have to picture the cross being in this gap. And so it's when the chair one person, the seeker, comes to the foot of the cross and they accept the Lord as they accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They move into this chair and they become a believer. And it's at this point when we start to learn to love Jesus. We fall in love with Jesus. And so as we develop, you kind of picture this as kind of not, not a kitchen chair. Think of it as a high chair. You know, and that's that's where we can you turn me down just a little bit? That's where uh, that's where we set where we learn. You know, we learn how to feed ourselves. You know, when we're a spiritual infant, we need someone to help us. We need someone to teach us. And, and you kind of got to picture a drop cloth around this because, boy, it gets messy. And so, you know, if you, you, you've seen trying to feed a kid in a high chair. They start throwing their food. It's all over them and everything. And that's kind of where we are when we first come to know Jesus. And so it was the, in this chair, when Jesus' disciples were following him, he kind of upped the ante a little bit, and he gave them a little bit of a higher-level challenge when he said, follow me. That's when Jesus said, follow me. And then he, he exemplified what ministry looked like for those folks. And when we sit in this chair, we're kind of selfish at first. But the thing of it is, is we can't remain that way. We have to start 
worrying about other people. Uh, we love Jesus in this chair, but we want to move to, the ch- to chair three, and we want to become workers in the harvest. We want to start bearing fruit in our lives. We want to fall in love with people. Because to love God is to love people. And so it was in this chair when Jesus made a, a higher level challenge. About 18 months into his ministry, he now said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And so at this point where Jesus wants us to start bearing fruit, in our lives. And as we develop on on this path, on this journey, we end up in chair number four, and this is the disciple maker. See, Jesus spent three and a half years developing these men that would follow him, and he exemplified ministry. And then he started sending them out into the ministry field, and he started, he started letting them practice it under his supervision. But at this point, Jesus gave the highest level challenge that he gives to all of us when he said, now go and bear much fruit. See, we become the disciple maker. And Jesus told his disciples, I love this. You've heard me say it, I don't know how many times. But when we, when we get to this point on our journey, when those men got to that point on their journey, Jesus said, you used to be my student. You used to be a servant. Now I call you my friend. And so I believe this is where Jesus wants us to be. And we're going to be talking about making disciples today. <clears throat> We've also talked about our strategy, and that, that answers the question, how? How do we help move people on a simple journey toward Jesus? And there's a list of them on the screen. We encourage people to serve because we believe that, that when saved people serve people, then those served people have a chance of becoming saved people. And, and Jesus came not as a conquering king, but he came as a servant. And so he calls us to do the same, and so we encourage people to serve. Whether it's in the church, whether it's outside these walls, we want to encourage people to serve just as Jesus did. We also want to encourage people to share their faith. Because Jesus told us to preach the gospel. And that can take a lot of forms. It can look like a lot of different things. But one of the most important things that I think we want to help people learn to share is your own story. Is your own salvation story. Because I've told people before, I used to think mine was pretty boring. And so I didn't want to, want to share it, you know. But the bottom line is, is everyone's salvation story is powerful. Because it's got God all over it. It's, it's, it's got Jesus wrapped around it. And so we ask people to, to, to share their story. And we want people to grow. You know, I think one of the problems I'll be addressing a little bit is we kind of like to hang out right here. We kind of like to stay in this chair. But, but Jesus calls us to move on this journey. And he has a destination for us. And he has a job for us to do. And so we want people to grow. We want people to always consider taking their next step on this journey, on this mission that we're talking about. We also encourage people to give, to be generous with God's gifts. And not just because the Bible says we're supposed to. We don't want you to feel obligated to. We want you to do it because you want to. And, you know, we beat up on tithing a lot, and I think tithing is a biblical principle. But we want you to give generously based on where you are. Because we know not everybody is here. And so we encourage everyone to be generous with their, with their gifts. And we get to see God's kingdom expand and God's kingdom grow uh, when we see that happen. But we also encourage people to live in life, to engage in community with one another. Because the Bible, I think, is very clear. We're not supposed to go on this journey alone. You know, we're supposed to, to, to take care of one another. We're supposed to encourage one another. We can't do that when we're separated from one another. And so one of the ways we do that here 
at uh, Journey Church is through our Journey groups. We also have ABF classes that meet on Sunday morning. We have fellowship events. There's all kinds of things where we want people to come together as believers in community. And so that's, that's our strategy. That's how we want to help people move on this journey. For the last couple of weeks, Randy talked about a couple of different topics. Uh, one, he talked about loving God. And then he talked about loving people because to love God is to love people. See, you can't love God and hate people. That doesn't add up. That's an equation that doesn't have the right answer, and so it just doesn't compute. And he stated that to love people means to help people. It means to, to take people when they're in their, in their lowest point, either financially, emotionally, physically, whatever. We're to help people if we love people. If we love people but we don't help them, uh, it's, that's kind of an oxymoron too. And so to love people is to help people, to feed them, to clothe them, and to show compassion. Uh, but to, to help them in their physical needs. But there's another, there's another standard for loving people that we can't ignore. And that's being concerned about their spiritual condition. Because in the bottom, in, in, in the bottom line is, and in the end, it's, it's just basically if we've fed somebody, if we've clothed somebody, if we've helped somebody, but we have no concern about their eternal destination, then what have we really done? We've done nothing. What have we really given them when we do that? I think we have to worry about their, their eternal position. I mean, how are we really helping people if we don't help them become a disciple? And so there's the word today that, I, that I'm going to hang on a lot. And I wanted to share with you, you know, I want to tell you a little bit about what I think the word disciple is. Um, but I kind of first want to talk about what it might not be. And I had an experience this past weekend, and it, it really kind of stuck with me, and it's kind of been in my mind. And when I was writing this sermon, I just felt compelled to share this with you. I was, I was at a seminar at another church in Lexington uh, for two straight days, two full days. And during that seminar, I was sitting with, uh, with a bunch of guys at a table, and this seminar was about disciple-making. And there was one gentleman there, we were talking about what is the problem in the church. I think there is a problem in the church with disciple making, but we were, we were asking each other what, what that was about, what, what we think the problem is. And this one gentleman, he was, he was very adamant. I was sitting at the table and he said, you know, the problem is, is we just show a general lack of respect for Jesus because we don't dress right when we come to church. He said, men don't wear suits. Women, uh, women wear shorts. And, and that's our problem. If we can fix that, then the disciple-making thing will, will come along. And I mean, he was, he was very sincere in his concern. And so I heard that all day, and I was a little self-conscious because, you know, we're kind of a come-as-you-are church, and I was sitting there and kind of looking like I look right now. And so I, I was a little self-conscious about that, but it really started bothering me because I really don't think that's where our problem starts. You know, I just don't, I just don't believe, I'm not, I don't share his sincerity, you know, that it's a, that it's a lack of respect. But anyway, let me, I got a picture here of someone, and we'll talk about what discipleship isn't, or what a, what it, what it's not. Now, some of you may know this, this gentleman, some of you may not, kind of goes back to the 80s and the 90s. But this guy, as you can see, he was well-dressed. I mean, he wore Armani, he wore Brooks Brothers, he wore all of, the, the best labels, expensive clothes. I mean, this guy was just obsessed with his appearance. Now, those of you that don't know him, his name is John Gotti. And he was known as the Dapper Don. 
Okay, he was, he was also known as the Teflon Don because it was hard to convict him. But Dapper Don is the one that, the, the moniker that really stuck with him. And if you didn't recognize him and you don't know who he is, he was uh, an infamous crime boss for the New York Gambino family. I mean, this guy was brutal. I mean, he was a murderer. You know, there's one story that he murdered his next-door neighbor because the guy accidentally ran over his son in the driveway. Guy disappeared. They never saw him again. Murder was the way of, that he did business. I mean, and his business was uh, prostitution. It was gambling. It was loan sharking. It was everything that you can think of bad is the way he tried to make money. But wouldn't you agree that he cleaned up pretty well? I mean, he always wanted to look his best. You know, one of the neatest stories that I heard about him is one of his uh, underbosses had actually stolen a, a semi-truck load of designer suits. And so John wanted his pick of those suits, and so he climbed up into the back of this truck, and he picked out a wardrobe of suits. And then he took a pair of scissors, and he cut the rest of them up so nobody would look like him, so nobody would be wearing the same suits. That's how obsessed he was uh, with his appearance. And so I understand this guy I was sitting with. I understand his concern. I understand the, the whole issue of appearances and respect. But folks, I believe that when we stand in front of our maker, when we stand before Jesus, I think it'll be naked, if not, if not literally, figuratively. See, I think everything about us is going to be exposed, and I don't think it's really going to matter what we're wearing. In Matthew 23, 27, Jesus said this. He said, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. When he said hypocrites, he meant you actors, you fakers, you liars. That's pretty strong, that's pretty strong words, right? He said you're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. See, the Pharisees and the teachers, man, they, they knew how to dress well. I mean, they looked like royalty. I mean, they had flowing robes, and they wore purple. I mean, they, they really looked good, and they, they thought that drummed them up with respect. And, but, but really, what Jesus was doing in these verses is he was exposing their hearts. Because it didn't matter what they were wearing, their hearts were rotten. Their hearts were terrible. They were unclean. See, I think when we start to bring about change, by when we start to trying to do the things that Jesus wants us to do, then I think, that, that, and I think everything else comes along. A heart change comes about. It's not about changing our clothes. You know, I think that, that the first thing we need to do is look internally, look at our hearts. Ask that question, do we, do we follow the character and the priorities of Christ? See, I believe the heart change will come about, but I don't think, and I think people are going to notice it. And it's not going to have anything to do with, with the tag on our neck or the price tag on our clothes. Because I think when Jesus starts to live in us, it's going to be obvious. People are going to see it, and they're going to want it. So if that's not what a disciple is, then what is a disciple? <clears throat> what is a disciple? You know, if you look at Merriam-Webster's uh, definition of it in the dictionary, it says that it's a follower or a student of a person or an ideal. And that's a, that's a pretty accurate technical definition of a disciple. 
Uh, I believe that's, that's adequate technically, but I think that there's, there's a whole lot that's missing in that. And so I came across this one de- definition that I wanted to share with you that I think sums up what a disciple is. It says, a disciple is one who knows God personally and pursues Jesus passionately, modeling everything in their life after the character and the priorities of Christ. I think that about sums up what a disciple is. And so when we try to look at ourselves and look into our heart, I think that's the candle that we need to be looking at. That's the standard candle that we need to be looking at when we're comparing ourselves to what Jesus calls as a disciple. There's a couple of points that I want to pull out of that definition that I think we should talk about. A, a t- couple of very key points that I think are critical. And that first one is, is that a disciple is somebody who knows God personally. Did you, get, did you catch that? A disciple is someone who knows God personally. It's somebody who's accepted Jesus Christ as their only Savior. They accepted Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And it's someone who's, who's working on entering into a personal relationship with God. A personal relationship with God. See, because when Jesus Christ came to this earth and, and, and he grew up and then he started this ministry that lasted about three and a half years, then Jesus went, he, he, he developed these, these disciples and these apostles and, and he brought them along a path and taught them ministry and taught them how to make disciples. And then, then he willingly went to the cross. He bore all of our sins and then he died on that cross. And then three days later, he was resurrected. And then there was this big curtain in the temple, and it separated the temple from the Holy of Holies, this place where only one priest could go once a year to have access to God. When Jesus died on that cross, that big, thick, heavy curtain that we couldn't pass tore in two. And then we now have a direct access to the living God, and He calls us into a personal relationship with Him. Sometimes we think about just what Jesus gives us, and we thought it's, it's kind of like Santa Claus. But, you know, Jesus gave us a pathway that leads to the creator of this universe. Can you, not, can you not get that? Does that not just tear you up? We have a direct access to the living God. <clears throat> John 1.12, the author says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God. We all should be on this process of pursuing that personal relationship with God. That's the biggest gift that anybody could give us. Another sentence I want to pull out <clears throat> of that definition. You have to excuse me. I've been a little, had a little chest thing like everybody else in the world, so it's, it's creeping up on me a little bit. But that second thing I want to pull out of this definition is that a disciple is somebody who pursues Jesus passionately. A disciple pursues Jesus passionately, and don't miss that either. A disciple is somebody who's committed to be like Jesus. They're growing in their love and their patience and their kindness and their understanding of what God has for us. The priorities of Christ are being followed by someone who's passionately pursuing Jesus. We care about his priorities and we want them to be ours because Jesus had a priority of loving and exalting the Father, of loving God of loving people and making disciples that make disciples. 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. 
In other translations, I like them even better. It says, those that claim to abide in him must walk as Jesus walked. And that's what a disciple does. In ancient times, the word disciple was interchangeable with student. To, to be a disciple, it meant to be a student or a learner. But my favorite uh, kind of adjective for that is it meant to be an apprentice. It meant to be an apprentice. See, see because a, a student, they didn't just want to, to learn what the teacher knew. They wanted to learn who the teacher was. The intent was to become just like the teacher, to be just like the teacher, to, to walk like the teacher walked, to eat like the teacher ate, to sit like the teacher sat, you know, to be like the teacher. The goal was to be this, this carbon copy of the teacher, and that's what it meant when you were a student or a follower in those days of Jesus. There's a rabbinical teaching from the Mishnah that uh, it goes something like this, that a that a student is to walk in the dust of his teacher or his rabbi. Now that means they're supposed to, to get behind and walk so closely that they can't miss anything that they're saying. To get behind him and walk closely behind him so they don't miss anything that they do. And literally, they're going to be covered with dust because of the, the dust that gets flipped up from the sandals of their teacher or their rabbi. And that's how we're supposed to, to follow Jesus. Jesus is our rabbi, our teacher. Luke 6.40, Jesus said this, he said, A student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be just like his teacher. And you've got to catch on to that. Be just like his teacher, being committed to be just like Jesus. And that's too important to miss. Because see, if a teacher disciples a student, and then the student is going to be just like the teacher, then doesn't it make sense that the student will disciple others? See, if you read those verses, it tells you that right there, built right in the DNA of that word disciples, is making disciples. That's what Jesus calls us to do. You can't be a disciple of Jesus. This is a tough statement, but you can't be a disciple of Jesus if you're not committed to making disciples. Jesus made disciples, so his disciples must make disciples. You can't say I'm a non-reproducing disciple because that just doesn't fit. It's, that, that's just not true. It can't be. Because if you're like Jesus, you're going to make disciples. Because if you study that life of Christ, that's exactly what he did. Think about that for a second. Was Jesus' end game to make disciples? I'm going to tell you, I, mean, that's, that, I, I know a lot of people would say yes, but really that wasn't his end game. He made disciples. But if that was his end game and he made disciples and they found themselves a building in their town and they just went in and they studied and, and they never left it, you and I wouldn't be sitting here. We wouldn't be here. Jesus' end game was making disciples that made disciples. And that's why we have this, this, this church universal of millions of Christians, billions of Christians in the world today through this miracle of multiplication. Because in Jesus' ministry, this three and a half years that he spent here on earth, his, his priority was to, to build a movement of multiplication. And it's obvious because we're here. We're the result. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And I would have to ask this, if, we, if we're not fishing, then we're probably not following. Jesus' intent was to make reproducers of disciples. It's what he did, and it's what his disciples do. 
I wanted to, to talk with you. There's this key difference in terminology there, there's, that, that I think it's important to talk about because we use these words so much. There's a difference between discipleship and disciple-making. And it's a term that we use, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, but to kind of to kind of emphasize the difference that similar terms can have, I've got a, got a little grammar illustration for you. Let's put up that first slide. Okay. Grandma's in trouble, wouldn't you say? So let's go ahead and put up the second slide. It's just a little bit different. Okay. Totally different meaning, right? Pronunciation saves lives. In this case, it saved grandma's life, right? And so two, two similar terms with two totally different meanings. And that's kind of just like the difference between discipleship and disciple-making. And we, I want to I explore that a little bit more with you. See, that little comma made a big difference, right? You know, I was in the design and the construction industry for 25 years, and we had contract documents and all this other stuff. And if, if you, I don't know if you know what a change order is, but if you're a client or an architect, it's a bad thing. It means that something unexpected has happened, and it's going to cost more money. And, and I can't tell you how many times over the course of my career that, that the placement of a comma cost somebody some money. You know, it's, it's, a power, it's powerful. So the difference in terminology is, is something that we need to look at here. It's mission critical, I think, to know the difference between discipleship and disciple making. So what is discipleship? Discipleship is, um, you know, to, to define it, I think, I, you know, if I had you in a class, I'd probably break you up into groups and have you discuss about what you think discipleship is. So it's not, probably not going to work real well today. So I'll give you some, some true definitions of what discipleship is. Some people would say that it's the growth and the maturity of a Christian. Others would say it's kind of a deeper study or, or maybe uh, joining in a journey group. Some people would say that it's a daily pursuit of disciplines. And that's true as well. And other people would say it's helping others along their walk. And all those are very good definitions of discipleship. But let's talk about what the, the, the definition of disciple-making is. You know, the term def, uh, disciple um, is, uh, disciple-making is rooted in a verb form found in the Greek New Testament, uh, or in New Testament Greek. And I'm going to mangle this because I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm not good at this, but I'm going to give it a shot. The term is matha et uo, and that means dis, to make disciples. It's a Greek term to make disciples. There's an example of this in Acts 14, verse 21. It says, They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. And see, in this instance, disciple-making is connected with evangelism. And so in the next verses, the, the, the Great Commission, or what I like to call the Everyday Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'll be with you even until the end of the age. See, disciple-making in these verses is, is kind of described as a holistic process, from, from conversion, through baptism, through obeying the commands. The command here is to make disciples who make disciples. The process is intended to be repeated and ongoing. It's not supposed to stop. It's kind of a lifetime followership of Jesus Christ. That's what it's intended to be. 
Disciples become, becomes an action. It becomes a way of life for us. You know, discipleship is not a term we find in the Bible. It was, it was, it was penned and created like three or four hundred years ago. And, and, and I mean, I've used that, that word a lot of me. For, for goodness sakes, it's in my title. I'm the pastor of discipleship. But discipleship, for the most part, has become something that, that really only relates to our growth as believers. Now, now I don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Actually, it's a very critical thing, and it's a necessary thing for us to grow on our walk. And all those things, those definitions I've described are key, and they're critical. But I think too many times we've kind of gotten stuck in this traditional method of discipleship, and we've kind of ignored the aspect of making disciples. That's just a fact in our church. It's kind of we're kind of ingrown, and we don't really understand how ingrown we are. Disciple-making is about reaching those around us. I wasn't planning on sharing this with you, but this morning, um, the Lord kind of put this on my heart. Um, we have about 327 million people in this country. Based on the last census data, about 15% claim that they're connected in some way to a Christian church. Only 15%. That's a little staggering. That means there's 278 million people in this world that most likely don't know Jesus or aren't following Jesus. They're all around us. And we have to deal with this issue of the, of the declining church. It's true. I can't help it. People call me negative for saying it. But the bottom line is, in that same census data, we see that 4,700 churches close their doors in this country every year. This year, 4,700 churches will close their doors. And only 1,000 churches will be planted. Do you see a problem? And it's one I think we have to acknowledge. See, I think that the, the reason it's, it's like, I'll go back to the first, uh, what I was talking about. The reason is not how we're dressing when we come to church. The reason for that decline isn't rooted in that. The reason's right here. I think the reason is, is that Jesus' last words have become our least concern. When he told us to go and make disciples that make disciples. It ought to be evident to you that the harvest field is ripe right around us. It's the people that live next door to you. It's the people that you work with on a daily basis. It's the people that you stand in line behind in the grocery store. It's all around us. Disciple making encompasses evangelism, and teaching to obey God's command. And that's kind of like two wings of the airplane. I've talked about that before. They're both critical. I've never been in an airplane and said, boy, I'm, I'm, I hope the left wing holds up. <laughs> or I hope the right wing does. Boy, that wing's more important. No, without both of them, it's going to be a bad ending. And so those two are very important aspects of disciple-making. Growth comes through reproduction Reproduction that continues to multiply. That's why we, we're so adamant about saying that we want to make disciples that make disciples. If we want to adopt the priorities of Christ, please know that, that Jesus' priority was a movement of multiplication. So when you go back to that definition, and if you want to be like Christ, if you want to adopt His character and His priorities, He was all about multiplication. So how do you know if you've made a disciple? We just look at the fruit. 
You just look at the fruit. John 15, 8. Jesus said, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be what? To be my disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus requires fruit in our lives. You know, our mission and our vision in the church, I hope that you can see it's wrapped up in all of this. That Jesus glorified and exalted the Father in everything he did. Nothing that he did, he didn't, he didn't neglect to give God the credit, to give the Father the credit and lift him up every day, to elevate him to a high level. And we want to do the same thing. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Does that sound familiar? We didn't make up the vision and the mission for this church. We adopted Christ's priorities and that's what we want to do. And then he told us in Matthew 28 once again, he said, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey the commands I've given you. And surely, if you do that, I'll be with you. Always. Even until the end of the earth. Jesus will be with us. We obey His commands. If you want Jesus in your heart, if you want to live closer to Jesus, obey His commands. Make disciples that make disciples. Glorify God in your life. Love Jesus. Love people like you love your neighbor and make disciples that make disciples. <clears throat> I really am trying to, to come up with ways to help you guys and to, and, and to walk alongside you. I haven't got this all figured out. Trust me. I don't. But I want to, to encourage you and I want to invite you uh, a month ago, I told you I'm going to be starting a community called Live 2-6. We're going to start that after uh, Journey Hoops is over. This is a, a long-term study that, that's just solely about learning about the life of Christ, about the man of Christ and his mission, his vision, a thread that held his, his uh, ministry together. That's going to be one night a week. It's going to be a Thursday night, and it's going to be one, or once a month, I'm sorry. One night a month, it's going to be about three hours. If you're, if you're interested in that, please see me about that. I'll be up here after the last song today, or you can contact me through the website, through my, my email, or through my cell phone. Uh, I give that out freely. If you're interested in learning more about this guy, learning more about this life that he lived, it, it will just totally change the way you look at Jesus. It'll blow your mind. You're welcome to join us. I've got a half a dozen people or so that want to be a part of it. I have one of these that meets at 5.30 in the morning already, but this one's going to be at a more reasonable hour. And so that's our call. Yeah, those are where some of the guys that are doing that are we're laughing. Yeah, but anyway. God calls us to make disciples that make disciples. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for this gift of this day. Thank you for the gift of the snow that's falling outside right now. Lord, give us a heart that wants to love you, not for the stuff, not for the things that you do for us, but just because of who you are. God of the universe. Lord, make our path clear. Give us a desire to want to follow you. 
Help us to adopt your character, your priorities. Lord, we love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand and sing with us?